Good morning, everybody. How about taking your Bible and turning to Mark chapter 7, okay? Mark chapter 7. We'll get there in a minute. Let me remind all the guys, uh, I need you this Saturday. We need at least 12 to 15 guys here Saturday morning at 830. Uh, if you can give us an hour, come give us that hour. If you can give us two, give us that two. We need you for about three hours. We're going to completely restructure those islands out front in the parking lot and make that look a lot nicer than it does now. So please, guys, if you'll help us, it's this coming Saturday at 830. Um, I'm pretty enthusiastic about the message today. I promise uh, not to go over my time because I know that's important. That's my way of showing you respect. Uh, but when I started this week, I had about 12 pages, okay? I mean, there's some good stuff from Mark chapter 7. Today, I want to teach you something. Uh, if you've been at your faith, work, faith walk for a while, that ought to be in your top five doctrinal understandings, okay? Even if you haven't been at your faith walk for a while, uh, or if you've never really bought in, it still is something you need to know and need to understand about this church and others like it. Uh, the older I get, the more I realize there's just so much I don't know. You know, with the onset of the internet and be able to look up virtually anything that crosses your mind, uh, it makes me feel very small intellectually. Uh, I didn't know, for instance, that if you put your rubber bands in the refrigerator, they'll last a lot longer, right? I mean, how many times you gone to get a rubber band, you pull it out to stretch it over something, it pops, you know, and so because they're, they're, they're dry, the humidity's affected them or something, I don't know. I didn't know that the eye of an ostrich is bigger than its brain. Did you know that? I'd say the eye of an ostrich is bigger than a lot of people's brains. Um, I didn't know that a dragonfly only lives for one day. One day. I'm going to show a little more respect to, to those insects. Uh, listen, the memory span of a goldfish is three seconds. Now, ladies, that reminds me a lot of your husbands, right? Three-second memory span. Uh, I had no idea that a shark is the only fish in the ocean that can blink both eyes at the same time. Did you know that? No idea. There is much we do not know, but if you are part of Grace Community Church or you attend Grace Community Church on a regular basis... There's at least one thing, there's a handful of things, there's at least one thing I want you to know. There's at least one thing that I hope you really do know, and that's knowing when you're on the right track. If you attend Grace, if you're a member, if you're a regular attender, if you're, today's your first time. If you sit in this service, I want you to know when you're on the right track in your faith walk. Now, the reason that's so important to me is because maybe you grew up in a church where it seemed like they kept raising the bar or moving the goalpost. As soon as you felt like you were on track, you came and heard another message, or they opened up a new series, and what it felt like to you, or what it seemed like to you, was that, well, they just raised the bar again. Uh, they just moved the goalpost. When you are on the right track in your faith walk, it's just better all the way around. It's better, first of all, for you, because when you know you're on the right track, you walk more confidently through your life. Uh, when you know you're on the right track, um, setbacks and, and, and difficulty don't derail you because you know eventually you're going to reach the destination. Uh, if you've ever traveled at night, I, I remember one time a Amy and I were in Michigan, never been to Michigan before in our lives. It was about midnight. It was snowing. And evidently there was some sort of accident ahead because a policeman flagged us down and he sent us on a detour. Now, up until that, that point, I had a GPS, I had a, had a, a road map, and I knew I was on the right track because I could see the road sign. It demonstrated that I was on Route 74. I was on Route 15, whatever it was. And then I could compare that to the road map, and I knew I was heading in the right direction. But when he made us take that detour at midnight, 
down some little cow trail that wasn't appearing on my map, nor was it appearing on my GPS. I was very unsure and unsettled for quite some time. 90 minutes it took us to finally find our way back to where we were originally headed. But when you know you're on the right track in your faith, well, it's just better for you all the way around. Look, it's also better for us. Uh, it's also better for us as a church because if you know you're on the right track and you know you're part of a church that's on the right track, then teamwork is the result, you see? When everybody's rowing the boat, there's no time to rock it. You get it? When we're all on board and we're on the right track and we know it, we can be far more effective than if we don't. Teamwork is one of the valuable things that comes as a result of being a part of a group like this. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of your church as a team, uh, but a team, teams and teamwork, very, very important. Uh, it fills a, a longing, a need for community in every one of our lives. But now, what holds us together as a team? Well, a lot of teams and a lot of people would assume that what, what makes a team is a common goal, a shared goal. Like, if you're a bunch of football players and you call yourselves a team, then what makes you a team is you want to go to the Super Bowl. But listen, haven't we all known teams that were talented, that had the goal of going to the Super Bowl, but out of 32 teams, only 30 make it? I mean, only two make it. That means 30 don't. You see, it's not the goal of church. It's not the goal of religion that makes us a team, okay? It's the values that we share, the shared values. That's what makes us a team. If you are an employer, if you own and operate a small business, your employees need embrace your values because that's what makes you a team. You can't walk into an employee's meeting and say, okay, look, here's our goal. We want to be the biggest hardware store. We want to be the biggest pharmacy. We want to be the biggest restaurant. That's our goal. That is not a guarantee for success, but shared values most often are. Uh, John Maxwell, again, he's one of my favorite leadership gurus. He writes, we are who we are because of what we believe, the shared values we embrace. Now, pause for a moment and think about how important this is. Let's say you're a baseball team. If your goal is the World Series, what happens if you don't make it? If you have the goal to go to the World Series, but you do not share the value of self-discipline, of determination, of loyalty to teammates, of hard work, I guarantee almost emphatically that you're not going to make it to the World Series. That's why values in any organization, whether it's yours or this one, God's church, are terribly important. At this church, we share common values. For instance, a shared commitment to Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you share that value? Have you bought in, have you embraced in authentic faith that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be? Okay. Is Jesus Christ the answer to all of your big questions in life? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's my life all about? What happens next? We also at this church have a shared commitment to quality decisions. Quality decisions are those decisions in life that make lasting differences. Are you personally determined to make the quality decisions whose impact will last forever? Here's another shared value we have, a commitment to the faith walk. Now, to those who prioritize their faith walk, in other words, their individual personal relationship with God matters more than their work. It matters more than their money. It matters more than their family. Their individual faith walk, that's at the top of their list. To those who prioritize their individual faith walk, they know how important. They know there's no substitute to walking in faith. 
I'll tell you another value we embrace around here. That's a shared commitment to evangelism. Do you realize this church exists very simply to show people there's a better way of life in Christ, period. We don't exist to be the biggest church in the community. We don't exist to do the most mission work overseas of any church around. We exist simply to get people to come to church who typically wouldn't come to church. You see? Do you share that commitment with us? That's why we stand up here and we say, hey, invite somebody to splash. You're inviting them to splash in the bro next Sunday night might be the first step in their whole spiritual journey. Uh, Bernie Marcus, many of you know Arthur Blank, one of the founders of Home Depot, but his partner was Bernie Marcus. And Bernie Marcus, back in 1979, he said the following, we believe a sure way to growing this company is to clearly state our values and instill them in our associates. Well, guess what? It's worked. In 1979, those two men launched four stores. They had less than 90 employees, four stores. Today, they have 200 and they have 2200 plus stores they have more than 400,000 employees and last year they did more than a billion dollars in annual net profits Jesus accomplished this very same thing with his disciples. You see, when you read through the Gospels and you read of a conversation Jesus had with his disciples, they weren't talking about their goal. They weren't talking about their plans. Primarily, they were talking about the values Jesus wanted them to embrace. It was very, very important to Jesus that his closest followers, those dozen men or so and several others, that his closest followers not simply understood the plan, the goal, but that they embraced the values, and that's what made them on the right track. One of the reasons that I think this church and so many of you are on the right track in your faith walk is because we understand the value, the importance of realism in our faith walk realism. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to what I would call a religious feeling church. There's a big difference between what goes on here and what goes on there. Now, before I go any further, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. Today, I am not trying to tear down organized religion. I'm not trying to tear down the traditions of many churches, the liturgy and religious practices of other denominations. I'm simply trying to shine a light on the value of realism in our faith walk. Jesus was all about realism when it came to his disciples. Uh, there's a big difference between the two. For instance, religion is typically comfortable and familiar. You see, religion has been the same for generations. You see, my grandfather worshiped that way. He taught my father to do the same, and my father taught me. So for generation after generation after generation, there's a comfortable feeling, a familiar feeling about religion. Religion is also easy to identify and measure. Why? Because in a religious environment, most everybody looks the same. In a, in a hyper-religious environment, in order to fit in, you must act a certain way. You must speak a certain way. Uh, I can remember the days in churches, especially religious churches, where you needed to dress a certain way. A certain attire on Sunday morning was expected in that religious environment. And then it's also safe and non-confrontational. Once again, in a religious environment, you typically don't deal with problems and difficulties because if anybody's different, they eventually are ostracized and pushed out. Or if there's something out of bounds in your life, we just pretend that it doesn't exist. 
you see? But in a real church, in a real environment, an environment that embraces the value of realism in the faith walk, it's 180 degrees opposite. It's uncomfortable and awkward because not everyone in a real church is on the same path, spiritually speaking. We don't grow at the same rates. We don't grow in our faith in the same ways. Uh, it is also difficult to identify and measure because, again, it's very different. And finally, it's risky and direct. If you're in a real church, there's going to be confrontation because people don't always see eye to eye. If you're in a real church where people are pursuing the reality of their faith walk in a very real and genuine way, there's going to be difficulty. It's risky and direct. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I felt it was my responsibility to go to a husband and say, what are you doing, man? Or go to a wife and say, what are you doing, dear? Or go to a family and say, man, this is out of bounds. How can I help you? And nine times out of ten, you know what happens when I do that? They leave the church. You see, it's risky and direct to confront sin in the body, to be honest about our shortcomings, our failures, our mistakes, our setbacks. That's risky. That's very, very difficult to accomplish. But if you're committed to realism in your faith walk, it must be part of your ministry. Now, everybody knows that Jesus had many, many dust-ups with the Pharisees, okay? The Pharisees were professional religious people, okay? The Pharisees were religious while Jesus was real. The Pharisees were all about religion. Jesus and his disciples simply were not. On one occasion in Mark chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples returned from the marketplace, the public marketplace, and they ate without giving their hands a ceremonial washing. Okay? Jesus had some pretty harsh things to say to the Pharisees when they pointed that out. Now look, I'm going to read about 23, 24 verses out of this chapter. I normally don't read this much on Sundays. But I told you at the outset, this is one of the top five doctrines you need to understand. And if you're going to enjoy your membership and your participation in this church, you certainly need to understand where we're coming from, and it's Mark chapter 7. So bear with me. Let's read this slowly. We'll kind of talk our way through it because I want to make sure you get this. Mark 7 verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, remember, they were professional religious men, okay? They had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do, do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the, what's the next word? Tradition, not teaching, not command, not law, but holding to the teaching or the tradition of the elders. Look, understand. This ceremonial washing you will not find as part of the original Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, okay? This was some elders, some Pharisees' good idea. This is going to make us closer to God if we do this. It caught on amongst the people, the religious people, and it became part of their religion. Keep reading, verse 4. When they or come from the marketplace, talking about the Pharisees, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, before you say, well, look, that's just ridiculous. I can't believe anyone in modern culture, in our modern church, would do that. We've done the same thing with Sunday school. We've done the same thing with small groups. We've done the same thing with certain kinds of music in the service. D do you realize that... <clears throat> I'm dating myself here. 
Do you realize that when we started Grace Community Church and we introduced this kind of music into a worship setting, we were criticized for it? And that's just 25 years ago. 25 years ago, if you didn't have a piano or an organ, how could you possibly worship God? Now, what's fascinating to me is 25 years later, we face the same thing in reverse. What kind of music y'all play? Oh, really? How can you worship by that? How can you really experience God with that? It's remarkable how often we're quick to stamp something as sacred that's not sacred at all. It's religious. We've done the same thing today in our modern churches that the Pharisees did with their cups and their pitchers and their kettles. Verse number five. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Isn't that an interesting word? Now, remember, we started with a tradition. We started with a religious practice. It wasn't commanded of God. It was a good idea that someone thought was more spiritual than otherwise. But now they've turned it into something that separates them, men and women, from God. That's what defiled means. Verse 6, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. I love how Jesus just gets, he goes right to the point. There it is. Calls him a hypocrite. And by the way, hypocrisy is still one of the top three reasons people refuse to go to church. I don't go to church because church is full of hypocrites, right? Same was true with Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What's he saying? He's saying it will always be easier to talk your religion, to speak your religion, than it is to live your faith. We get that, right? In a realistic environment, we understand that. In a religious environment, we don't have time for that. In a religious environment, you either fit in with us or go somewhere else. Keep reading. Verse 7. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human traditions or human rules. See, there are many unspoken rules in a religious environment. And the people that catch on, well, they're going to be the ones that fit in. The people that don't understand, don't catch on. They're going to be the ones that are eventually... Locked out. Verse number eight. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Remember I said at the very beginning, there's nothing wrong with human traditions. They're far more comfortable. The commands of God are far much, much more difficult. There's nothing wrong with human traditions. But when human traditions become the substitute for our getting to God and measuring whether or not we're on the right track, and we've exchanged human tradition for the commands of God, something is very, very wrong in our church. Verse number 10. Uh, let's see. Verse number 9. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. Verse 10. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. Remember, that's one of the original 10. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Watch this. So the command was difficult. Honor your father and mother. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this should be important to you. The older I get, the more important I realize 
I must honor my father and my mother. Okay? But watch what they did. Watch what these religious people did. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God. Honor your father or mother, verse 10. Anyone who curses their father or mother will be put to death, verse 11. But you say that if anyone declares what, that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corbin, that means sacred, that means devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. In other words, if I decide that it's too difficult to honor my father and mother, if, if, if I decide that it's just too difficult to give to my father and mother, to care for my father and mother, to honor my father and mother, you know what I can do? If I'm religious like the Pharisees, I can say, well, what I was going to give to mom and dad, I'm now going to give to God. Because giving to God is more sacred than giving to mom and dad. That's what they were doing, you see? The command was simple, honor your father and mother. It doesn't go Beyond that, in explaining all the subtle nuance to that commandment, it simply says, honor your father and mother. So now I'm faced with a commandment, with a directive to do what I can do to honor my father and mother. But sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes that makes me uncomfortable. Sometimes I must sacrifice in order to accomplish it. So what do I do? If I'm a Pharisee, if I'm a, if I'm a Pharisee, if I'm a professional religious man, what I do is I say, well, look, now I'm a preacher. You know, I can't spend any time with you people because I have to devote myself to the work of God. How many ministers' families, you know, are unraveling at the edges? Because religious people often put their work in the church over their family. Let me tell you something. My work in this church, as important as it is to me, as committed as I have been to it and continue to be, will never be as important as my commitment to my own family. You understand that, right? To me, that's part of being real in my faith walk. To stand here and even admit that to you, in my view, is to try and be real in my faith walk. The religious Pharisees were not. So they found a way around what was real in order to embrace what was religious. Verse 13. Thus you nullify the word of God by your own tradition that you've handed down, and you do many other things like that. Again, we do too. We say that a certain style of music is sacred. We say that a certain kind of home group is spiritual. We say that Sunday school is a must. We say that Awana on Wednesday nights is what it takes. Now, again, nothing wrong with any of that. But when it becomes religious as a means of gauging whether or not we're on the right track, we've lost all idea of what matters most to Jesus, and that's realism. Verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, every one of you, and understand this. Verse 15. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Did you get that? Nothing that we take from the outside and put it on the inside defiles us. Instead, it's the other way around. It's what comes out of us that defiles us. This is the difference between being religious and being real. If you're religious, it's all about what you put on. It's all about what you take in. It's all about how you clothe yourselves, present yourselves. If you're real, it has nothing to do with that. Keep reading. Verse 17, after he left the crowd, let's see, let me find my place here. Yes, verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Why? 
How come they hadn't gotten it? Because it was part of their culture. Religion and the Pharisees' hypocrisy was part of their understanding of what it took to be on the right track, to be spiritual. So they ask him again, verse 18, are you people so dull? John, Peter, James, wake up. Are you guys so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. So think about it. Religion says from the outside, put it on in order to fit in. Religion says from the outside, take it in, say it a certain way, participate in these certain things in order to be one of us. And Jesus is saying, that's not what it's about at all. It's not about what you take in or put on. It's about what comes out. Watch. Verse 20. He went on. What comes out of a person, that's what defiles them. For it's from within. It's out of a person's heart. Now what follows are a list of actions of mindsets that come out of an individual that no matter what religion you try to put on, won't make you clean before God. Here it comes. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now look, it ought to be no surprise to any of you that Jesus and his disciples valued realism over religion. They shared this value, listen, and so should we. Remember, I told you this before. The people in Jesus' day who weren't very religious, they loved him. In fact, the people who were the most unlike Jesus loved Jesus. They flocked to him by the thousands, and yet the most religious among them couldn't accept him. In fact, they ultimately crucified him. Listen, church, Mark chapter 7, this teaching has been our model from the very beginning. So if you don't consider yourself a very religious person, guess what? You're in the right place because, surprise, Grace Community Church is not a very religious church, okay? Hope you're comfortable with that, you know? Uh, over the years, and I don't mind telling you this, over the years, there have been scores of religious people who've come from another church to this one, and after a while, they drift away and go to yet another church. And yet, over the years, all those who were shown a better way of life in Christ for the first time, or the first time in a long time, in other words, people who came to this church who hadn't been in church in 20 years or had never attended church whatsoever, we've lost very, very few of those individuals. That's because from the get-go, from the outset, realism, honesty, integrity, authenticity has mattered most to this church. Grace is not a religious church. So from this passage, we have one of the clearest, the most realistic descriptions of authentic Christianity in the Bible. So just because you don't measure up to your religious neighbor or your religious brother-in-law, that doesn't mean you're as far off track as you may think. Just because you're part of a church that may not do it the way other churches do it, that doesn't mean that somehow we've lost our way. I'm going to quit if you'll give me five minutes and give you three principles to live by, OK? 
okay? They actually determine the difference between being real and being religious. Here's number one. We're real and not religious when we endure realistic circumstances when we refuse to pretend. We're real and not religious when we endure realistic circumstances and refuse to pretend. Do you know what religion refuses to acknowledge? That life can get messy sometimes. See, that's why everybody needs to fit inside this nice little religious box. And if you don't fit inside that nice little religious box, if, if something about your marriage is out of bounds, or something about your past is out of bounds, or something about your present is a little different, it won't be long before you either leave because you're pushed out or you pretend it's not there. You see, real people endure realistic setbacks, realistic tragedy, realistic difficulty, realistic failure, realistic problems, and they refuse to pretend. The Bible talks about inner struggles. You know about inner struggles, right? Deep down, you know what's right, you want to do it, but it's difficult. Do you understand that the apostle Paul is the one who made that claim? If Paul, the apostle, perhaps the greatest apostle and missionary the church ever knew, he wrote more than half your New Testament, if he can make a statement like he makes in Romans chapter 7, I know what I should do, but I have difficulty doing it, you better believe that as the pastor of this church, I'm going to stand before you and say the exact same thing. I'm not going to pretend I don't have inner struggles. You do. Paul did. The Bible talks about external hardships, setbacks, one bad thing, bad experience after another. The apostles endured imprisonments, beatings. They were stoned. They lived through riots. They were shipwrecked. You see, in religious environments, sometimes these things don't fit very well because bad things aren't supposed to happen to good people. The Bible also talks about private disciplines trying to pray more and struggling, trying to read the Word of God and be committed to it. You know all about inner struggles, external hardships, and private disciplines because you know that authentic Christians aren't superhuman. You know, just because you're filled with the Spirit of God does not mean I'm any less human, right? Just because I'm serious and intentional in my faith and the Spirit of God indwells my body, that doesn't mean that I'm any less human. You will never become so spiritual, church, that you're any less human. Religious people think you can. Real people know otherwise. Here's number two. Real people model realistic qualities. The Bible calls them fruits of the Spirit. Real people demonstrate realistic qualities. Let me tell you something. How impressed would you be with me if I told you every Sunday morning before I come before you, I kneel in that restroom back there in the offices, and I wash my hands before they handle the Word of God. How impressed would you be by that? Wouldn't that be the silliest, dumbest thing you've ever heard? You'd be going, woohoo! But what if I'm patient with you or someone else? What if I demonstrate love and kindness to you or someone else? What if you wrong me and know you've wronged me and I forgive you? How impressive would that be? A lot more than this, right? Right? See, the religious people will always prefer this because this is so much easier. The Bible doesn't say, put it on like a coat that's got all your merit badges, your letterman jacket from high school. The Bible says, live it out and God will begin to bear fruit in you. And fruit doesn't happen overnight, does it? Anybody ever walk out to their apple tree and hear it going, 
apple. Not the way it works, is it? I grew up in orange country in Florida. We camped out and played games in orange groves. Never once did I hear an orange tree. Orange. Never heard it. It takes time. It's slow. Galatians chapter 5 identifies the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, if all nine of those are present in your life, then surely you can expect things to go smoothly for you, right? Wrong. Wrong. I don't care if you're all loving and all kind. I don't care if you're all gentle and all patient. Number three, real people understand they must anticipate realistic results. That's why the importance of long-term commitment. You see, when you're real, you're going to be misunderstood by some. Some watching online today will misunderstand what I'm saying, guaranteed. Someone will criticize you for attending this church, guaranteed. Sometimes you'll be judged by the religious people around you, and that's tough to swallow, believe me. But if you're real, you're going to experience failure, but you're going to be willing to own it. You're not going to cover it up because it doesn't fit in with your religious peers. If you're real, you're going to have good days and bad days. But that's not what your faith walk is about, how many good versus how many bad. If you're real, you won't need to explain the depth of your faith or the depth of your knowledge. You're going to be walking it out. Chuck Swindoll, hands down, my favorite pastor, teacher, and author, discussing this very topic, Chuck Swindoll wrote, a Christian must be able to cope with contrasts. The irony of what appears to be in the truth of what is. Now, look at that because I'm sure some of you live it. I know what I want to be. I know what I want to do. But it's tough. It's difficult to be real in my faith. The commands of God will always be more difficult than the traditions of men to embrace, to walk, to live. Okay? So the irony is what appears to be what I'm shooting for versus what I know in my mind actually is. You've got to be, you've got to be able to cope with that. Real men and women endure realistic or anticipate realistic results. When we get real, church, our marriages will matter more to us than our spiritual knowledge because the Bible says that's what ought matter most. When we get real, our integrity at work, our work ethic for an employer will matter more than our status in the church because that's what the Bible says. When we get real, teaching our children things like responsibility and honesty will mean more than making sure they look good to other parents when they're in public. And when we get real, walking out our faith will always remain more important than just talking about it. Over the years, we've developed a little phrase we use that in our minds best describes the process of leaving the religious behind in pursuit of the real. And here it is. Connect, grow, serve. You boil it all down. I come up with those three words. Connect to Jesus Christ. Is he the Lord in your life? Is he the boss of you? Grow in your faith. The Bible says it this way. Add to your faith things like knowledge, things like patience, things like determination, and then serve one another. You commit to that, rest assured, you'll never ever make the mistake of prioritizing religion over realism. Let's pray.
Father, I don't know why we so often choose religion, religious people, religious things, religious settings over the reality that is our world. Father, I don't know why in religious settings we so often criticize one another for certain life choices or decisions or parts of someone's life that we would deem out of bounds. I, I, don't, I don't know why we tend to gravitate toward that. But Father, make this a church that's real, that's honest, that's authentic. God, may we understand the words of Jesus in Mark 7. May we take them to heart. May we own them and live them out. Help us this week as we try to do so, Father, I pray, because of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. Hope you make it a great week. I'll see you next time.